0: Hello, and welcome to What The Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. This part usually comes after the opening music, but it's slightly different at the moment. After a busy period, I've gotten very behind with the podcast. I don't want to end it prematurely like I did last year, though. To catch up with the original schedule, I'm going to be recording some double feature episodes that include a main episode and a creature feature in them. Each episode will have a longer title so I can keep up with my episode numbers, and these shouldn't last too long. So, enjoy the longer episodes for the time being. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to What The Heck, a show that looks at mysteries and the unexplained. Every week we look at something unexplained, telling a story or describing it, then looking at the theories surrounding it. I'm your host Glenn and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a true crime episode. We're looking at Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie isn't really a mystery. She's one of the world's best known crime authors, with 66 detective novels, 14 short story collections, the world's longest-running stage play, The Mousetrap, and two very recognisable characters, namely Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, to help us remember her. Agatha was born on 15th September 1890 to Frederick and Clara Miller. Frederick was a wealthy American, and Clara was the Irish niece of Frederick's father's second wife. They had settled in Torquay, Devon, before Agatha was born. She was the youngest of three, born ten years after her brother Monty and eleven after her sister Madge. They lived in a large home called Ashfield. Agatha was homeschooled by Frederick for a while. Clara didn't want Agatha to learn how to read until she was at least eight, but young Agatha was bored as the only child at home, and taught herself to read by the time she was five. She absorbed the children's stories of the time by authors like Edith Nesbitt and Louisa M. Alcott, as well as poetry and thrillers from America. Being the only child at home while her siblings were away at school, Agatha often spent time amusing herself with imaginary friends or writing poetry. When Madge was at home, she and Agatha would make up scenarios filled with frightening characters, and Agatha would have recurring nightmares about someone she called the gunman. When she went to school, Agatha spent a short time in a girls' school in Torquay. Clara found it unsuitable, and so took her to Paris, where Agatha attended a succession of boarding schools. While here, she showed significant progress with her singing and piano skills, but was incredibly shy and never pursued either past a hobby. By eighteen, Agatha was already amusing herself with short stories, something Clara had encouraged whilst Agatha was in bed fighting the flu. Some of these earlier stories later got reworked and featured in her collections. In 1910, Clara and Agatha set off for Cairo to attend the three-month debutante season at the Gezira Palace Hotel. The goal was marriage. But Agatha showed more interest in the archaeological sites. She did make friends though, and upon leaving Cairo, she received invitations to their home and subsequently marriage proposals. Most of these were rejected, but she accepted one of them the proposal from Agatha's friend, Reginald Lucy. He insisted they wait two years, just in case anyone richer came along. That would allow Agatha to break off the engagement to secure some money. In 1912, Agatha attended a party at Ugbrook House near Exeter, Devon. Here, she met Archie Christie, a man who had applied to join the Royal Flying Corps. They began a whirlwind affair, with both desperate to marry, but neither having the money for it. Agatha broke off her engagement with Reginald, marrying Archie on Christmas Eve of 1914, ...after both had experienced the beginning of the First World War. Archie had gone to France... ...and Agatha had worked in a Red Cross hospital in Torquay. Their honeymoon night was spent in Torquay... ...and Archie returned to France on the 27th of December. It wasn't until 1918... ...that Agatha felt their marriage really began. During the war, Belgian refugees had come to settle in England where the people of Torquay had welcomed them. Agatha believed that a Belgian refugee would make an excellent detective. She created a character who was a former Belgian policeman, and Hercule Poirot was born. In 1919, Agatha gave birth to her only daughter, Rosalind. That same year, a publisher received Agatha's manuscript for The Mysterious Affairs at Styles* and contracted her for another five books. The original ending was changed to create the finale in the library, a staple for Poirot novels. Her time with this publisher lasted until 1923, when she decided to seek out a new publisher, William Collins and Sons, now HarperCollins. The first novel published by them in 1926 was hugely successful. However, all was not well in Agatha's personal life. 1926 also saw the death of Agatha's mother, Clara. Agatha was tasked with clearing Ashfield alone and found herself struggling to write. To make matters worse, her relationship with Archie had broken down when Archie had fallen for a fellow golfer and friend of the family, Nancy Neal. In early December, Agatha was overwhelmed. She had argued with Archie, who had decided to spend the night with friends. Her friend and secretary, Carlo, was away for the night, and Agatha left Rosalind and the house in the care of her maids without telling anyone where she was going. The next morning, her car was found miles away, abandoned in a chalk quarry. A search began that stretched nationwide. The press and the public enjoyed speculating on what may have happened, but nobody knew for sure. Immediately, suspicion turned to Archie, who had called in her disappearance and had been the last person to see her alive. The police applied to pressure to him for 11 days. They continued to search for Agatha, believing her to be dead. Agatha's brother-in-law had told police that he had received a letter from her explaining that she would be in a spa in Yorkshire. The police had ignored it and continued the search. After bringing Agatha's dog to the scene where the car was found, they believed that she had committed suicide because the dog couldn't follow her scent. Speculations that Agatha's house was haunted, which had driven her to run away, also began. Her house, Sunningdale, was rumoured to be haunted and near the site of a murder and a suicide. After a week the police had no leads. They discovered that Agatha had left three letters behind. One to her brother-in-law that had been ignored, one to Carlo, her secretary, and one to Archie who had refused to tell police what the letter contained. When questioned about his letter Carlo denied that Agatha's disappearance was a publicity stunt. His letter only contained scheduling details for him. The police turned to Agatha's manuscripts for clues, examining what they thought to be her work in progress, the blue train. It was speculated that Agatha had travelled to London and was in disguise as a man. Rumours also began to appear that she had left a sealed envelope that was only to be opened if her body was discovered even spiritualists got involved in the surge holding a seance at the chalk pit where the car had been discovered the newspapers reported that the police had discovered important clues nearby including a bottle labeled poison lead and opium fragments of a torn up postcard a woman's fur lined coat a box of face powder The end of a loaf of bread, a cardboard box, and two children's books. This was coupled with a new theory from detectives. Agatha had no intention of returning home. The next day, police received a phone call. Agatha had been spotted in a spa in Yorkshire, signed in under the name Teresa Neal. Police brought Archie to the spa, where Agatha didn't recognise him. Agatha never spoke of her disappearance to her friends or family. She and Archie remained apart too. Agatha stayed in London with Rosalind and Carlo, attending psychiatric treatment in Harley Street. Due to a lack of money, her brother-in-law, Campbell Christie, suggested that she combined some Poirot short stories that she had written for the Sketch magazine, creating the Big Four. In 1927, Agatha created her second character, the white-haired old lady from a small village, Miss Marple. After her divorce was finalised in 1928, Agatha went on to live a full life, continuing to release crime novels. Her last public appearance was in 1974, at the premiere of Sidney Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express, starring Albert Finney as Poirot. In 1975, Curtin was the final Poirot novel, causing the New York Times to run their first obituary for a fictional character. Agatha Christie died peacefully on the 12th of January, 1976, and the lights were dimmed in the West End theatres. She was buried in the churchyard of St. Mary's, Cholsey, Oxfordshire. That year, Sleeping Murder was released as her final novel, And her autobiography released in 1977. Agatha Christie's legacy continues though, with multiple media releases including film adaptations of her books, stage plays and even an episode of Doctor Who set on the day she disappeared. The episode uses a wasp-like alien to explain how Agatha ended up with her amnesia and the storytelling parallels many of her novels. That's the story of Agatha Christie's mysterious disappearance and reappearance. But what do people think happened? Martha Christie disappeared for 11 days in December 1926, reappearing with some kind of amnesia. What happened to her? Some people believe that her disappearance was a ruse, designed to frame Archie for her apparent death. Others believe that the amnesia was brought about by a fugue state created by trauma and stress. Others still believed that Nancy Neal had been trying to kill her and Agatha had managed to escape. Archie himself believed it to be a concussion, something that was confirmed by doctors. But what had caused this? The death of Clara, coupled with Archie's infidelity, had pushed Agatha to breaking point. Her exact reasoning is unknown, but Agatha shed a little light onto the situation. Agatha was fiercely private, and even after her disappearance, she refused to speak with anyone about it. She did mention it in an interview with the Daily Mail in 1928, though. She recalled driving past the quarry on December 3rd, before she disappeared, and had thought about driving into it. Rosalind had been in the car, though, and she decided not to. She admitted to feeling like she couldn't go on anymore. The night she fled, she says that she had turned the wheel to steer into the quarry, but the car had hit something and stopped, causing her to hit her head. She said that up until that moment, she had been Mrs Christie. Through her psychiatric treatment, she managed to put together some sort of narrative to the events that transpired. She remembered arriving at a large railway station, which she discovered to be Waterloo. She was covered in mud and had blood smeared on her face from a cut on her hand. Between the crash and her appearance at Waterloo, her mind had caused her to become Mrs. Theresa Neal from South Africa. From there, she had travelled to Kings Cross Station and off to Harrogate, Yorkshire to visit the spa. She had spent time there, arriving with nothing and telling the staff that she had left her luggage with friends. Agatha later said she was very happy and contented with life as Mrs. Neal. While she was at the spa, she read every day about her own disappearance, believing her to have acted very stupidly. Witnesses said that Agatha would press her hand to her head, saying that she couldn't remember. Agatha Christie's disappearance became huge news due to her status as an author celebrity. Nobody truly knows what happened to her, because she took the truth to her grave. What do you think happened to her? The information from this episode came from the Agatha Christie website, Novel Suspects and the New York Times. The theories from this episode came from Novel Suspects, The Guardian and Historic UK. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged, with a £3 here if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too. Hello and welcome to the What The Hecks Creature feature, where we look at folklore and cryptids. Every Saturday we look at the history of a creature before even describing it and looking at theories of what the creature might be. I'm your host Glenn, and I can't give you the answers to these unexplained things because I don't know what they are. I'm just here to give you the information to decide for yourself. All research is done as academically as I can, and references are given at the end of the episode. This week's episode is a folklore episode. We're looking at Kitsune. In Japan, there are many legends of creatures classed as yokai. The word translates to strange apparition and they are classified as supernatural entities and spirits within Japanese folklore. The kitsune is one of these yokai. Kitsune translates directly to fox. Because of this, the description will be with the story today, but there is much more to the kitsune than first appears. In ancient Japan, foxes often lived closely with humans, leading to plenty of folktales of the tricky animals. Because foxes are known as tricksters, with plenty of stories showing this facet of them, Japanese folklore shows them in a different light sometimes. Kitsune and folklore are also portrayed as faithful and kind guardians. In the Shinto religion, they are associated with Inari, the Shinto kami of rice. They work as Inari's messengers. Some people even made sacrifices to them as their own kind of deity due to their power and supernatural aspects. If a kitsune is white or gold, it is a messenger of Inari, and considered to be a good omen. Across the East China Sea, in China, stories about fox spirits portrayed them as mischievous creatures, with stories joining the Japanese folklore as time went on. Foxes also became known as witch animals, animals that couldn't be trusted during the Edo period, between 1603 and 1867. These two views of kitsune led to two separate types appearing in folklore. Zenko kitsune are good fox spirits who are kind, taking the role of Inari messengers. The other kind were the yako They were field foxes who appeared as tricksters. These were the main types, although local folklores featured other kinds. Some examples include the Ninko, an invisible fox that humans can only perceive when they're possessed by one, or the classification into 13 types based on the element possessed by the kitsune. These classifications are heaven, celestial or prime, Void or dark, wind, spirit, fire, earth, river, ocean, mountain, forest, thunder, time, and sound. To separate kitsune from regular foxes, they are shown to have as many as nine tails. The nine tailed ones are known as Kiyubi no kitsune, which translates to nine tailed fox and they have the ability to see and hear anything happening anywhere in the world and have been attributed to having omniscience or infinite wisdom. It's vital to mention that, when born, Kitsune look exactly the same as a regular fox. They gain new tails over time, although the legends vary on the timescale of that. Some say the new tails appear every 100 years, Others just give an indeterminate amount of time. Sometimes Kitsune have difficulty hiding these tales, and it can be a way to discover a Kitsune accidentally. Even still, 100 years is quite a significant age for Kitsune. According to many of the stories of Kitsune, they gain the ability to shapeshift at some point around 50 or 100 years old. To do this, they must prepare. This can come in the form of collecting reeds, leaves, or even a skull to achieve a transformation. The stories of a kitsune's transformation vary. In China, they are said to transform into beautiful women to seduce young men. But in the Japanese stories of them, they are known to be devoted wives who only leave after being discovered or remembering their life as a fox. These stories often involve the children of the kitsune, Humans who have some form of supernatural or physical abilities. But that's not the only transformation a kitsune can do. There are stories of young and attractive women who walk alone at night and they are believed to be kitsune. This could be because of something called foxface, which was considered very attractive. Foxface is characterised by a narrow face, close-set eyes, thin eyebrows, and high cheekbones. Kitsune were believed to keep their features when turning into a young woman, but they weren't just limited to the form of a woman. Kitsune have also been known to transform into young girls or boys, or even elderly men. The Yakko Foxes, also sometimes called no Nogitsune, had another ability. They were able to possess people usually those who wronged them, and make them act strangely. This could be to embarrass them, like making them walk through town naked, or perhaps to tarnish their reputation by putting them in compromising positions, or even make them say or do things that they normally wouldn't in public. One way to see if someone was possessed was to watch how much tofu or red bean rice that they consumed. Both of these are considered a kitsune's favorite dish And eating massive amounts of these foods are signifiers that a person is holding a kitsune spirit within them. Don't worry though, it's a simple fix. Take the possessed to an Inari shrine and ask the Zenko kitsune for help. Once the Yako fox has left, the affected person will never want to eat tofu or red bean rice again. Both kinds of kitsune are able to use magic in some way or another. They have something known as Foxfire, which is very similar to a Will-o'-the-Wisp, which tricksters use to lead people off the path, or even create illusions or visions. Sometimes the goal of this is to just seduce, steal, or humiliate people for various reasons. Other times it may be a form of vengeance. However, a kitsune will never forget a promise, and will always try to repay favours. Other kitsune may use magic for the benefit of others. If a kitsune attaches to a home or a person, they may shower them with money or items. However, as yokai, kitsune don't share human morality, and these things may come from neighbours or other places they have been stolen from. Because of this, households believed to have a kitsune with them are treated suspiciously. There's an exception to that rule, though. Samurai. Samurai families with a kitsune were considered to have a Zenko kitsune, and their use of magic was seen as a sign of prestige. Over the years, kitsune have left the forests and begun to take up residence in abandoned homes. There's a 12th century story of a minister who moved into an old mansion, only to discover a family of foxes trying to scare him away before claiming that the house had been theirs for a long time and that they wished to protest the minister's presence. Once the minister refuses, the foxes give up and move into an abandoned house nearby. Some tales talk of kitsune treasures and kitsune gifts. These are very different things. If a kitsune offers a payment or a reward in the form of a material wealth like money, This reward may not be all that it seems. Some, or all of the reward, may be sticks, leaves, stones, or other valueless items under an illusion. Kitsune gifts are the real treasure. Usually intangible things, a kitsune gift may come in the form of protection, knowledge, or even long life. There is certainly something else that needs to be mentioned. Kitsune love to be free and don't look kindly on losing that freedom. They own things called kitsune balls or star balls. These small white gold balls are a kitsune's prized possession and seems to be their life force. Holding one of these allows a person to control a kitsune and force it to do their bidding. There are serious repercussions for doing this, though. In the modern day, we've seen a few versions of Kitsune appear. In manga and anime, Naruto, the titular character of his own show, is the prison for a great spirit, the Nine-Tailed Fox. It starts as a being of hatred and anger, but through Naruto's respectful treatment, it begins to try and use its power for the salvation of the world. In Supernatural, the Winchester brothers encounter a Kitsune in the episode Girl Next Door. This interpretation shares little in common with the Japanese folklore, though. There are Digimon based on Kitsune too. Specifically, Renamon and Kyubimon, as well as their dark forms. This idea continues into Pokemon too, with Vulpix and Ninetales being based on the legend. Finally... In the Teen Wolf series, Kira Yukimura and her mother are introduced in season 3. They are both Kitsune. Kira's storyline follows her as she learns to control her newly found powers, starting by helping her new friends defeat Stiles Stilinski, who has been possessed by a Yako fox that refers to herself as a no Kitsune. There you have it, a brief look into Kitsune. I'm sure there are plenty of stories I could look into, but that may take a long time. Instead, why don't we look at what they could be? spirits that are part of Japanese Yokai folklore, but they appear in China and have a form in Korea too. The folklore stretches back to ancient Japan, but what do people think they are? The first theory today is, you guessed it, that kitsune aren't real. Folklore is difficult to find evidence for, and we don't have anything tangible to hold on to aside from thousands of years of folk tales of them. Their origin is believed to have come from China, with the spread of Buddhism, and stuck. However, there doesn't seem to be a specific origin point to them. It's difficult to talk much about this theory, because there really isn't a huge amount to go with. Another theory is that kitsune are very real. With thousands of years of stories about them, it should stand to reason that these creatures could have existed at some point. However, their powers are very specific and their ability to integrate with society almost seamlessly makes it difficult to provide any proof. It could be that the children of Kitsune didn't pass on their powers, or that the urbanisation of Japan's cities may have killed them off or pushed them back into the wilderness of the country. The third and final theory today is that Kitsune are just what their name translates to, foxes. We know that they lived closely with the Japanese people originally, so all it would have taken is an active imagination to create a story about how they were secretly magical creatures, and the legend was born. Whatever you believe the kitsune to be, just be careful if you go to Japan. Not all foxes are kind. Don't let them play tricks on you. The history and description from this week's creature came from Sakurako, yokai.com, and the Mythical Creatures Guide. The theories from this episode came from the previous articles and the Brooklyn Paranormal Society. References and links are posted on social media if you want to take a look. The link tree is available in the episode description, so you can go to your preferred social media or listen on your preferred platform. Patreon is still unchanged, with a £3 here if you want to support me, but I have nothing to put on there yet. Suggestions, personal stories and corrections can be sent through the email in the episode description too.